Today I'm gonna read Isaiah 58, True Fasting. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 735. Shouted out loud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken commands of its God. They ask me for decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with the wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your man to humble himself. Only a day for me man to humble himself? Is it only for bow, bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on a sackcloth of a, and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day of acceptable to the Lord? Is not, is not this the kind of fasting I haven't chosen? to lose the chains of injustice and until the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your, be your guard. Then you will call, the Lord will answer, you will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger, and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age of old fountains. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and with dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miles. Well, this morning and this evening, we are so blessed to welcome to Knox Nikki Toyamasito, 
If you were at her session yesterday, you know she's a passionate, brilliant thinker and theologian about issues of biblical justice. If you've read her books, you know she's a compelling writer on these same issues. She has served in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, worked with the Urbana Conference, most recently worked for the International Justice Mission, and most recently now has just been appointed as the Executive Director of Evangelicals for Social Action. And so we are delighted to welcome Tanox Nikki Toyamasita. Why don't you come forward? We're going to pray for you. Let's pray for Nikki, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gifted servant of yours, and we pray that now you would anoint her by your Holy Spirit, equip her, God, to preach boldly the good news of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. One of the things I did in uh, the beginning of my ministry work was I was an university staff worker in Berkeley, California. Um, Berkeley, California, they call it the Vancouver of the, Ameri- of, of the United States. It's the kind of place where I'm just hanging around in my neighborhood and I'm just talking to different folks out on the street and in stores and stuff like that. And Berkeley is the kind of place where you could say just about anything and no one will blink an eye. Uh, you can say anything that you want, the most outrageous things, no one really blinks an eye, but if you say that you're a Christian, it's kind of the one thing that you can't really say. I could tell somebody that I raise porcupines and skunks and that I release them into nursing homes and preschools, and people would be like, that's cool, no judgment, you know, whatever works for you. Tolerance is the name of the game in Berkeley, but... The one thing that could raise the anger of those ever-tolerant, ever-accepting Berkeleyites was to say that you're a Christian. I would say that, and they would look at me, and their eyes would say, how could you? You looked normal. So with my evidence that demands a verdict in one hand, I set out to win that campus for Christ. And while I could argue with any atheist Um, uh, through apologetics, they weren't asking the questions that I was ready and trained to answer. While I could argue with them, the conversation had changed from, how do you know that it's true, to, is the Christian God good? The conversation changed from, is the Bible reliable, to, doesn't your God hate women, LGBTQ folks, and people of color? But the one question that really stuck with me was this. People do truly terrible things in the name of religion. Something had changed. Back in the day when evidence that demands a a verdict was written, there was a general assumption that God was good. But then there was a question, which God? The Christian God, the Jewish God, the Hindu God, the Muslim God. But generally it was thought that God is good. There was a general belief in the goodifying ability of religion on people and a more general acceptance. Evangelism is about pointing people to God, to proclaiming the one who reconciles all things to himself, the one who rescues, the one who saves. Discipleship is about becoming more and more like Jesus, hanging out with the people that Jesus would hang out, doing the things that Jesus would do, and in the midst of that, developing your friendship with Jesus. 
But there's another reality added to this, and that reality is that people no longer assume that God is good. Pursuing justice testifies in the public square that the Christian God is a good, a just, a compassionate, and able God. Christian churches working on behalf of the poor, their actions testify in the public square that our God is a God who cares about the poor, the widows, and people at the margins of society. God's people fighting for land rights for First Nations people proclaims that our God is a creator God, the maker of heaven and of earth. God's people fighting for the dignity of persecuted peoples around the world testify that all people have worth because they are image bearers of our God. The pursuit of justice is the anti-story to the secular myth that religion corrupts people. Our God is a God who goes after the one lost sheep. He's a personal God. He's a God who stops for the ostracized, bleeding woman, healing her and then restoring her to her community. But he is also a God who tossed tables in temple courts and uprooted faulty economic systems that kept people from entering into his courts of prayer. He is a God of the synagogue, but he's also a God of the marketplace and a God of even the wells. Justice has become a necessary partner to evangelism. In some ways, pursuing justice and evangelism are two sides of the same coin. Evangelism proclaims the gospel, God's love for the world, and justice demonstrates the gospel, demonstrates God's love for the world. Justice has also become a pastoral issue. I was talking with some leaders who train church planters in the South Asian continent. This man in particular, he trains many networks of church planters, particularly in rural communities. And as he's training these local leaders, he's teaching them skills on how to study scripture, how to teach, how to pull together and, and cultivate a house church in these communities. But he said to me, he said, Nikki, do you have any resources that talk about God's perspective on justice? We are out here training people to plant churches. We're doing a great job and, and seeing amazing fruit. But one situation that has come up is that the pastor's daughter was taken by a local Muslim leader and was told she had to become his wife. We don't have any resources for this kind of thing. And this is the kind of issue that keeps coming up and coming up in that network of pastors. This was everyday life. It was a past, justice was a pastoral issue for that network of pastors. I sit on the board of an organization called InnerServe, and it's a fantastic organization with amazing stories that you can never tell because they're doing this compelling work in these pretty restricted areas. And I'm so impressed with the way that the folks, the missionary, uh, the InnerServe partners have stewarded their giftings in order to embody Christ to those who do not have access in their local community. Many of these communities are in the 1040 window and they have no traditional Christian witness in their, in their neighborhoods. But these are medical personnel, they're teachers, they're horticulturists, they are bakers, and they are in places where the church cannot be fully present. And in many of these communities, these people represent a country that is called the Great Satan. And it takes a long and faithful and persevering demonstration of God's love to undo all of the concepts and the presuppositions that folks have about Christians in that part of the world Things that say that Christians are promiscuous, that Christians are materialistic, that they are not devout, but they are mostly immoral. 
So many of the people are giving medical care or reading tangible needs in that community as a way of trying to faithfully and daily embody and embody the character of God to undo all of those messages. To some, it is the advocacy of Christians working for change in social situations that opens their heart to the gospel. There are many who come from a worldview that feel that the things that they are experiencing, the injustice that they are experiencing, they deserved it because of the things that they have done in a past life. They have been content thinking that it is their, due, uh, their just desserts. But when Christians fight for changes, they are no longer just left in a situation thinking that they just deserve it. The demonstration of justice testifies to a God of second chances. It demonstrates God's grace and God's forgiveness, and it emphasizes our inability to save ourselves. But there's a problem. Justice is kind of trendy. Today, justice is used to describe a lot of things, from buying shoes to fighting racism, from education programs to clean water. How do you guard against going to an extreme and being all about justice, but never mentioning Jesus? Becoming indistinguishable from the secular folks who are working shoulder to shoulder on some of the same issues. Pat Crayer, one of the, organi- one of the leaders of InterServe, he calls this donut holism. I went into Tim, uh, Tim Hortons this morning, I was wondering if I'd find on that menu donut holism for breakfast. Donut holism is when organizations only do justice, but they forget about the proclamation of the gospel, and they are guilty then of donut holism. They forget about the thing that is at the very center. As with all things that are trendy, how do you discern the real from the superficial? One of my favorite ways of doing this, of course, is to look deep at the word of God and what the word of God has to say. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah 58. It sounds so much gentler and kinder when a young child reads it. Um, Isaiah 58 shows where God is showing uh, how the way of discipleship, the pursuit of justice, and the proclamation of who God is is all all are integrally intertwined. Uh, verse, Verse 1, chapter 58 of Isaiah says, Shout it out loud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they are a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of his people, of its God. They ask for me just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? What's happening in the passage? Right? In verse 2, God describes the Israelites. And what do we learn about them? The Israelites are people who are, they're good folks, right? They're seeking after God day after day. They're fasting, they're worshiping, they're praying. They are eager to know God's will. No problem there, right? They ask for just decisions. They sound like a devout people. It's all really good stuff. So what is the problem in the passage? We have hints of it because God says, declare to them their rebellion and their sin. So with that in mind, let's continue with verse 3. This next section is an interesting description of fasting or engagement with fasting. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. 
Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? It is, only, is it for bowing one head, one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And here we see a striking picture, right? The Israelites, they're fasting. They're fasting, they're humble, they're repentant. And yet what is it that is God's concern? Here's a list of their wrongs. They're exploiting their workers. There's quarreling, there's strife. There's striking and there's violence. Fundamentally, the mistake that the Israelites make is that they pursue God narrowly. They pursue him only in their vertical relationship. They limit faith to simply their interactions, their vertical interactions with God. They are pious people. They're fasting. They're humble. They're repentant. They seek God's will. They are religious people, but they have separated their horizontal relationship with other people from their vertical relationship to God. If they're, just, if they're all good with God, that's the only thing that sort of mattered to them. They were unjust and belligerent with others. They didn't realize that to God, the horizontal relationships are intertwined with the vertical one. See how as the passage continue, God redefines the religious practice of fasting. In verse six, he says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen, right? People choose to fast because they want to listen to God, because they're repentant, and so God takes this vertical practice and he begins to redefine it this way. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn your way from your own flesh and blood? Fasting, and then later in verse 13, Sabbath keeping. These are things that are usually reserved simply to preserve and to enrich the vertical relationship with God. But in this passage, Isaiah is uh, redefining it in light of the horizontal relationships. It's about loosening chains of injustice, untying cords of the yoke, setting the oppressed free, sharing food with the hungry, providing shelter for a wanderer, and clothing the naked. Sharing your food with the hungry. This is an action that is not just a call to compassion. Compassion is good. Compassion is important. But notice that the exhortation is more than just to have compassion on someone. The exhortation is to share your food with the hungry. It's a recognition that the hungry are your kin, that you are in relationship to them. Providing shelter to the wanderer, the NRSV translates it, to bring the homeless poor into your home. This too is not just an act of charity, something you do and then you walk alongside but it's rather to bring your own kin into your home. It's a rec recognizing the family relationships that exist. Where the Israelites neglected and disregarded the hungry, the wanderers, the oppressed, and the unclothed, God says, these are not people to be disregarded. These are not subhuman folks. These are your family. The Israelites were longing to hear from God. They were doing what they could. They were listening and they were praying. But what they didn't realize was, that by tolerating injustice in their community, that interfered with their relationship to God. Tolerating injustice in their own community interfered with their relationship with God. God, in his grace, points this out to them. We can see how worship of God, the proclamation and the celebration of who God is, is intertwined with the relationship with those around there. That's what, the, what is um, made clear in this passage. 
the prophet connects the spiritual act, the act of fasting, to the actions of loosening the bonds of injustice. This is a picture of religion not corrupting, but a spiritual devotion that is lived out in the reality of the world. This is a picture of a community living in a way that testifies to the character of God, that declares that God is good, compassionate, just, and able. We see that in this passage that the prophet is taking something that is a spiritual act, fasting, and showing how it is connected to people's everyday actions. It shows that the vertical relationships that we have with God are intertwined, keenly intertwined with our horizontal relationships with others that we come into contact every day. If you choose the fasting that's pleasing to the Lord, if you choose to loose the chains of injustice, set the oppressed free, and share, the, share with the hungry, the homeless, and the naked, what is the promise? Let's read on. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. What an extraordinary promise, right? It's everything that they were fasting for. It's everything that they were asking for. The Lord brings, and brings to them in abundance. The response of God comes. What was it that the Israelites wanted, right? They were seeking God's guidance. They wanted just decisions. They were praying and they were fasting. They wanted to hear from God. When they loose the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free, what is the promise from God? That their light will break forth, that they will be healed, that the glory of the Lord will guard them, that they will cry, and the Lord promises to answer. He promises to guide them. He will satisfy their needs and strengthen them. Verse 9 says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night become like the noonday. Their light shines like the noonday in the darkness. Anyone know how bright the noonday is in the Middle East? It is bright. It is hot and it is bright. But the best part is coming. Let's continue in the passage in verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, right? We have pictures of what that looks like given the rain that we've had the last few days. A well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the old, age-old foundations, and you will be called repairer of broken walls and restorer of streets with dwellings. I love how the NRSV says this. That last verse, verse 12 says, your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to live in. Look at the past, the present, and the future in that passage, right? Ancient ruins rebuilt. That's a reference to the past. Foundations of many generations. That's talking about setting up a foundation for the future, right? So that's a reference to the future. But repair and restoration, that is the thing that is done in the present. 
The work of justice done today, the work of repair and the work of restoration done today in the present has the ability to rebuild the past and to set up a brand new foundation for future generations. It's a new starting point, a new beginning. Justice done today has the ability to heal the past, to break cycles of injustice for the future and set up a new story and a new reality for future generations. Something done today, a faithful act of repair and restoration done today. How does it work? I have no idea. I have no idea how that works. That's where I think we all need to be just a little bit Catholic. Catholics are good at mystery. Protestants love to know how everything works. So I have no idea how some faithful act in the present can do something to rebuild ancient ruins and can do something to set up a foundation for future generations. I don't know how that works, but God, God can do that, right? Our God is a God who can take a small act of justice done in the present and turn it into a miraculous thing that creates a new story for future generations and that heals a history. And that, to me, is the hope. When I look at the impossible and huge issues, justice issues are complicated. They're complicated, they're tricky, and oftentimes the stories are overwhelming. But there is the hope for me, because we don't have to figure it all out. There's something about God's ability to take small actions of faithfulness done today to change the future and to repair the past. It can be easy to give up, to look at injustice and think that it's too big, it's too huge. The questions are too large, they're too complicated. Quite frankly, it can be tempting to give up. And my response to injustice in the world is simply to shrink my world. I should just care about my youth group, my church, my friendships, my neighborhood. But we don't have to solve injustice. We just have to be a faithful presence and a testimony to the character of God in the places where he invites us in the present. Lest you think this is an Old Testament thing, I want to um, go back to Jesus' words. Jesus, when he lays out his mission and his purpose in Luke 4, he defines the proclamation of the gospel as a demonstration of justice in the lives of the people that he meets. Notice how the proclamation of the gospel is manifest in the demonstration of the gospel. Luke, verse, uh, Luke 4, verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's just a sneak peek. We'll do more of that in tonight's service. But when I look at Isaiah 58, and I see how God can take justice small acts of faithfulness done today and can rebuild ancient ruins, that a single moment today can change the future for my children and my children's children. I'm compelled to fight for justice. When I look at how Jesus defines his mission and his purposes on earth in Luke 4, I am compelled to fight for justice. Is there an invitation to you, Knox, in this? Is there a place where God is inviting you to give you a front row seat at the work that he is doing of justice in this community and in his world? Are there ways that your church can ask the question, are there people in our community who are not at the table? How can we speak up for, advocate for them until there is a spot for them at the table? Knox, where are the places that God has placed you in this community, in this city, in this province, through your missionaries present in so many countries of the world? Are there justice issues there that are invitations from God 
to this community and to this church. Perhaps God is inviting the church to express what it means to be a community of believers in new and extraordinary ways. If the church were to disappear tomorrow, would the community around notice? Would the homeless folks say, yes, there's always that lady, Cheryl. She always comes by before the women's Bible study on Tuesday. She talks to me. It's the moment I have of human interaction. Something must have happened because she didn't come. How quickly would the community notice were Knox to disappear? Knox is famous for its mission's heritage. Is there a way that Knox and its missionaries are uniquely placed? You all have the long view of what God has been doing around the world. Is there a way that you all are uniquely placed to speak into how to have integrity and avoid donut holism in this move to engage justice as well as proclamation of the gospel? Fighting injustice testifies to God's character, that our God is compassionate, kind, able. How does this inform the mission of our church and of of the people here? How does this vision, the vision of broken communities around us, inform our response? But what can I do as an individual with God's invitation to fight injustice around the world? It can be overwhelming in in the midst of a life that includes many other things in addition to church, right? An aging parent, a child having trouble at school, a bad review at work, a car on its last legs, credit card bills with not enough money to pay, an argument that's alienating people from other people, a a romantic relationship that's gone awry, or the lack of that romantic relationship. I want to offer there a couple of things that I think that all of us can do to be a way of responding to God's invitation to participate in his work of justice. One thing you can do is you can pray. Prayer is the work of justice. Prayer is not something you do before you go off and you do justice. Prayer is one of the most important works of justice. Too often I think we underestimate how much God delights when we pray particularly about the things that are very close to his own heart. I believe the most powerful beings in the universe are praying grandmothers. Did you know that if you look at the stories of many of the great evangelists in history, that many of them actually had a praying grandmother? The evangelists get all the glory, but I think that history belongs to praying grandmothers. I think that sometimes in that funny way that the economy of heaven is sometimes different than our economy down here, that it's praying grandmothers who change the world. To lead into something in prayer is to do several things at the exact same time. It's to to declare that there is a different reality that exists beyond the concrete that we can see with our own eyes. To pray is to affirm that God is a God who cares about his people, his creation, and his image bearers. And to pray is to declare that God is powerful and able to change what seems permanent or impenetrable. My kids pray, thank you, Jesus, for food, and help free all the slaves, amen. They pray this because there are more slaves today in 2017 than there have been at any other time in history. My prayer when I pray is, Jesus, let this be the day that everyone eats. And I pray this because God promised that he would feed all of his people. And the UN says that there's enough food for everyone on this planet, but there's a problem with distribution. Some folks are getting more than their own fair share. So when I eat, I try to remember to pray, and I pray, you know, Lord, let this be the day that everyone eats. And I picture, as I pray this, I picture, you know, someone on the street maybe finding a full uh, meal 
in the garbage set aside, a full meal, and that's the day that they eat. Or I picture some kids in, street kids in Thailand finding a bunch of ripe fruit just coming to fruition. Can I make a confession to you? I don't always remember to pray that every day. Sometimes I forget. But what if our prayers were powerful, that actually every time we asked that everyone would eat, that that was the day that God provided food for everyone to eat? But my failure to remember is just a, it's a reminder to me of my own powerlessness. So that's why I'm here, because I know that you here at Knox, I know that you're a praying church. And sometimes I forget. But I, want, I know that you all are the real deal, that you all pray. So I want to invite you to be people who join in the fight and who pray, who pray justice into being in this world. Prayer is the work of justice. But one of the, one of the things that allows injustice to flourish is when people see other people as commodities, as things to be bought and sold and used and not as people. For injustice to exist, we must believe that others are the other not one of ours, right? So is there a way in your daily actions that you can affirm the made in the image of Godness of every person that you encounter? It's a small act of justice, right? How can you affirm people's humanity with every interaction that you have? One of the organizations that I worked with uh, went to rescue boys who were working in the fishing industry in Ghana. And these boys were often uh, sent out on boats, sent down to go and untangle nets. Many of the boys didn't know how to swim, and they were often uh, left to die if, if they got tangled in the nets and were unable to come up. So one of the very first things that this organization does is when the boys are pulled off the lake, they give them a life vest. My children don't like life vests because they're bulky, they're uncomfortable, and sometimes they stink. But these boys were given a life vest because the first thing that that social worker wanted to communicate was, your life is worth saving. Here's a life vest. We're going to put this on you. They were valuable because they're human. They were valuable because they were image bearers of God. So with your actions today, what are small things that you can do to affirm the made in the image of Godness of others? Is it the person who serves your food at the restaurant? Ask their name. Look them in the eye. Please and thank you. Is it the homeless person who sits just outside? Is it the person who cleans the classroom after your last class? That person, too, is a reflection of God. What does it mean to be kind and considerate and thoughtful to those who are the invisible folks who make our society run? There is something that that person understands about God that you don't understand, but that they can show you a fuller picture, or reflect back a fuller picture of who God is. What can you do to affirm the made in the image of Godness of people who are different from you socially, economically, religiously, and racially. As a church, we can get involved in what God is doing around the world in big ways, but we can also get involved in small and everyday ways through prayer, through affirming the made in the image of Godness of people. These things might seem small. And as a church, we can ask questions about whether God is inviting the church to be involved in something bigger um, that is going on in this, uh, the justice issues that are facing this community. But while some of these actions might seem small, we believe in the God of Isaiah 58. This is a God who can take a small act of justice done today, something that is done in the present, a small act of repair or restoration, and somehow is able to use that small act in the present 
and use that to repair ruins from the past and to set up new foundations for future generations. We believe in a God who is able to take these small acts and is able to do something about rewriting a new story for a new generation of people. We believe in a God that takes these small acts of worship, these small, small things, a God who redefines fasting in terms of our horizontal relationships, a God who invites us to see the people around us all as our family and as our kin, and his promise to Israel that when they did this was that their light would break forth like the noonday. And I long to see it be said of Knox, that Knox was a community that testified to the character of God in this community. It was a place where the noonday shone into our community day after day. I believe that that is part of your heritage and your legacy, and I long for, for God to continue to grow that and to expand that as you enter and continue into these new seasons. May it be so. May it be so. Amen.